Hello everyone, welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week. We have a jam-packed Bible study podcast today. We are going from first Philippians, or not first Philippians, there's only one Philippians book. We're going from Philippians to Titus. So there's quite a few books in there. They're all pretty short. They're letters from Paul to different churches in the area. And it is jam-packed with a lot of great reminders that we can directly apply to our own lives today. So this is Philippians to Titus. I hope you enjoy. Okay, let's get right into it with the book of Philippians. So let's read the intro. Again, I always like to read the intro before reading the actual book, no matter how long or short the book is, because it just gives a very good context for what we're about to read. So Philippians intro is, on his second journey to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, the apostle Paul helped start a church in the city of Philippi, a colony of retired Roman soldiers. The Philippians became Paul's friends and supporters for the rest of his life. When they heard he was in Rome as a prisoner, they collected money to assist him and sent it with their, one of their members named Epaphroditus. Later, Paul sent him back with a letter to thank the Philippians for their friendship and support. Paul knows the Philippians were experiencing a lot of opposition, so he appeals to his own life as an example of how to respond to hardship with joy. Throughout the whole uh, palace guard that is right in the center of Caesar's realm, Paul is boldly making the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. Paul's desire is that the Philippians will gain the same confidence and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In an amazing hymn, Paul urges the Philippians to have the servant attitude that Jesus had. He did not grasp his high position, but humbled himself even to the point of death, all for the sake of others. This is the new way to be human that is revealed in God's kingdom. Our citizenship is in God's realm, and so we eagerly await the Savior's return to us. Then he will transform our lowly bodies to become like his glorious resurrected body. Okay, so that is the intro. So we get into Philippians 1, and like a lot of Paul's letters, he starts off with thanksgiving and prayer for the group of Philippians, like how God has increased their faith, things like that. Um, he then talks about, he said, um, what has happened to Paul has actually served to advance the gospel. So the persecution that he is enduring has actually been good for the gospel. He said, yes, some have different motives for preaching. Some are doing it out of their own like self-interest. But as long as Christ is being preached, it doesn't matter what their motives are. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is very popular in a lot of <laughs> Christian songs. Um, but this is where it comes from, Philippians 1. He said that Paul said that he would rather die, <clears throat> rather die and be with Christ, but he knows right now it's better to stay in the body. He says, you know, this is this goes along with what Paul says multiple times, where it's like to be away from the body is to be with Christ and vice versa. But he knows that in his mind he would rather be with Christ. <clears throat> it would be much better than being on earth, like in a prison. But he knows he has to stay and continue preaching the gospel. Um, he tells the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel, to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, to not be frightened by those who oppose them, and 
and warns them that they are going to struggle for Jesus in this life and for the gospel. Okay, in Philippians 2, he talks about imitating Christ's humility. He says, be like-minded and have the same love being in one spirit and one mind. To, he says to not do anything from selfish ambition or from vain conceit. And then he tells them to reflect God's humility. And God's humility is like, God made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant who is Jesus. So if you have listened to my other um, like religion podcast where I break down different denominations, you might remember in Jeho- in the Jehovah's Witnesses one, they do not believe in the Trinity. So they believe God the Father is the only God, but Jesus is not God and the Holy Spirit is not God. They're both like helpers, like the Holy Spirit is a helper spirit of God and Jesus is God's son, but that does not mean that Jesus himself is God. Well, this verse to me makes it very clear that Jesus is in fact God, where it says God made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. That to me means Jesus is God as well. So this is partly where the Trinity comes from, but Jehovah's Witnesses uh, do not believe that Jesus is actually God, just God's son. Okay, Um, he tells the Philippians to do everything without grumbling. He says, do not grumble or argue so that you may become blameless and pure. And then he has this section talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, who again is the guy who um, was basically the messenger and the carrier of the money to help out Paul. He says, Timothy has proved himself and shows great concern for you. So Paul is going to send Timothy soon, and then he is sending back Epaphroditus. Um, it said he was distressed when they heard um, that he was ill. So the messenger had gotten ill, and um, the Philippians had heard this, and, and they were distressed. So he's sending him back, and he has thanked him for the help. Okay, Philippians 3, he talks about having no confidence in the flesh. That's what the whole section is called. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, put no confidence in the flesh, meaning circumcision. He's talked about this multiple times because he is preaching to the Gentiles where some of them are like, well, do we need to get circumcised because that kind of symbolizes our faith, whatever. He says, no, you don't need to. You just need to be circumcised of heart, which means have the faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need to you're not under the law anymore. You don't need to be circumcised. <clears throat> in this chapter, Philippians 3, 7, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own <clears throat> that comes from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize 
for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So this is comforting. Even Paul at this moment does not consider to himself to have taken hold of everything, but he is pressing on and straining towards what is ahead, which I think is a very good example for everyone. Um, so he says that many people do not have this hope. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. He said, but our citizen is in heaven and we wait on Jesus to transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his. Uh, Philippians 4, he says, he gives his closing appeal to, he says to be steadfast and united. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all, which <laughs> I definitely need to work on gentleness. I don't think that's ever been a word that has been described of me, but he makes it very clear that gentleness should be one of your attributes. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. He thanks them for their gifts and says he has learned to be content in any situation, gives his final greetings, and that is the end of the Philippians. But that gives a, brings up a very good point about what we're filling our minds with. I think a lot of people, myself included in the past, and I've talked about this before, think that we can just fill our minds with any junk throughout the day and, and then expect our actions and our words to be great and Christ-like and wholesome and stuff. But if you're watching shows and listening to music that are about the opposite of this pure, lovely, admirable stuff, your words and actions are going to flow from that. So you you can't really expect yourself to listen to all this junk all day and then act Christ-like. We should be filling our minds with good, wholesome things. And I have really been on a on a kick of trying to rid myself of this unwholesome stuff that I'm listening to all the time. So just a reminder that we need to be filling our hearts and minds with pure, wholesome things. So that's the book of Philippians. The next book is Colossians. Okay, so for the intro for Colossians says this, while Paul was in prison in Rome awaiting his upcoming trial before Caesar, one of the letters he wrote was to the gathering of believers in the city of Colossae. Paul had never met them, but they knew who he was and respected his leadership. Paul had worked with a man named Epaphras, Epaphras when he was in Ephesus. Epaphras was originally from Colossae, but a hundred miles to the east. Paul sent him to bring the good news about Jesus to his city and to two other nearby cities. Epaphras was later arrested, arrested and brought to Rome as a prisoner himself. Paul learned from what was Paul learned from him what was happening in those cities. The Colossians were mostly Gentiles, but like the Galatians, they were being pressured to follow the Jewish law and were adding rules and false teachings to the faith. Some of them were priding themselves on having visions and getting secret spiritual knowledge. So Paul wrote to them a letter saying, when you've got Jesus the Messiah, you've got it all. Paul emphasizes that all things in heaven and earth were created by the Son and were reconciled to God by the Son's death on, on the cross. Christ possesses the fullness of God's being. 
Since the Colossians have been brought into the new kingdom of light, they can live their faith to the fullest. They are to put on the new self, awaiting the time the Messiah will appear openly, revealing his glory. So that's a good intro because before this, like when I had gone and read Colossians, I had never understood that Paul had not ever met the Colossians. Like I, I don't know. I just always thought that Paul was writing these letters to people he had physically gone and preached to. But this is very interesting. Paul has never actually met the Colossians. So Colossians 1 opens again with thanksgiving and prayer. This is from Paul and Timothy. They have heard of the Colossians' faith in Jesus, and they are continuously praying for them. Then he talks about the supremacy of the Son of God. He says, The Son of God is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and though him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Okay. So this is also making it very clear that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, and he is fully God. Um, and then Paul says that he's rejoicing in his suffering, and he says that his job is to preach the gospel. In Colossians 2, he, uh, this section is called Spiritual Fullness in Christ. He, he tells them to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow philosophy, philosophy, which depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. We see that, I feel like, a lot today, this hollow philosophy. He says, Christ is head over every power and authority and says that we were all dead in sin and now we are all alive in Christ. Now, as we touched on in the intro, they were tempted to go and talk or in, and they're being pressured to follow human rules. So like circumcision and these religious festivals and things like that. He said, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, new moon or Sabbath day. The reality is found in Christ. We are not caught up in the rules of the flesh. So I still believe that the Sabbath is is very beneficial. Like when Jesus was saying that, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Like Jesus kept the Sabbath, <clears throat> but not really in the way that the elders wanted him to. Like they didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath. They didn't want him to um, pick the grain from the field and eat it on the Sabbath. Like those extra rules were added on top of the Sabbath so that the focus was on humans serving the Sabbath, not the Sabbath serving humans. So I do think it's important to still have a Sabbath and to rest for a day. I just think practically and from what Jesus did, the Sabbath is important, but we are not caught up in the rules of the Sabbath like the Jewish elders were at that time. Okay, so that was Colossians 2. Uh, Colossians 3 talks about um, setting your heart on things above and mind. So kind of like what we were talking about in the last letter, setting your heart and mind on things that are pure and wholesome and things like that, putting to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, any evil desires you have, just put those to death and putting on your new self, which is your new self in Christ. He tells them to forgive one another as the Lord forgave you, and over all of these virtues put love. Now, then he goes into instructions for the Christian household. Uh, 
how wives should submit to husbands, husbands should love wives, children should obey parents, fathers should not embitter children, slaves should obey earthly masters, and masters provide slaves with what is right and fair. So people always go to the wives submit to husbands part without taking into account that the entire passage is talking about like an entire Christian community living in harmony with each other. He is not just saying wives submit to husbands that treat you terribly, don't love you, and hate God. Like he is not saying that. He's saying that in a believing household, there should be grace and love through every single one of these relationships. Husbands should love wives and cherish them and wives submit to husbands. That is like a conditional thing. He's not just telling wives to submit to any old man. Okay, so let's not get that twisted around. <laughs> um, but yes, so that was the instructions for a Christian household. Then in Colossians 4, he tells them to devote themselves in prayer and to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders and then gives final greetings. And that is the full letter, the full book of Colossians. Okay, now we're into 1 Thessalonians. Let me pull up the intro for 1 Thessalonians real quick. I was not prepared with this one. Hold on. Okay, the intro says, around AD 51, Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought the message about Jesus the Messiah to the city of Thessalonica. Many people became believers, but there was a riot when Paul and Silas were accused of defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. They narrowly escaped with their lives and had to flee. A little later, Paul became concerned that the believers in Thessalonica might fall away from the faith due to the opposition they were facing. So he sent Timothy to encourage them. As a Greek, he could make the trip more safely. When Timothy returned to Achaia with the welcome news that the Thessalonians had remained faithful, Paul wrote this letter to express joy. In this short letter, Paul first recalls his time in Thessalonica and gives thanks for their continuing faith despite trials and challenges. He teaches them to avoid sexual immorality, to love one another sincerely, and to work hard to earn their own living. Paul then addresses a key pastoral question. What is the Christian hope for those who have died? He explains that believers who die before the royal appearance of the Messiah are not lost but will surely be raised from the dead when he comes. He reminds the Thessalonians that Jesus will appear suddenly and unexpectedly. They should therefore live in such a way that they would be unashamed to greet him. Throughout the letter, Paul's basic message is keep up the good work. <clears throat> All right, so 1 Thessalonians, let's get right into it. He, like the intro said, he gives thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. He said, you welcome the message of the gospel, receive the Holy Spirit, and your faith in God has been known everywhere. So good job. <clears throat> Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, um, Paul talks about his ministry in Thessalonica. He talks about their last trip and how they're not trying to please God. I mean, they're not trying to please people, but they are trying to please God. Um, they, He talks about how they cared for the Thessalonians. They loved them. They were delighted to share the gospel of the Lord. And they thank God that the Thessalonians have accepted the gospel. He also talks about his longing to come see them, but his plans were deferred or destroyed by Satan. But the purpose of this letter um, and the purpose of sending Timothy is to strengthen and encourage them in their faith in the midst of this, uh, these trials and the persecution that they may face. 
First Thessalonians 3, um, he talks about Timothy's encouraging report, how Timothy has come and brought the good news about their faith and love, and he prays that the Lord will clear the way to allow Paul and Silas and Timothy to come to them. And then 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about living to please God. So again, like the intro said, he teaches them to avoid sexual immorality, to control their bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. And he said, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Then this is when he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the hope for Christians who have died. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So people who have like family and friends who die without the hope of Jesus... (laughs) It seems, yes, it seems like they have no hope. Like, that's it. That's the end. But we are not to grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. We will see them again, and they will see Jesus again. Good reminder when we're going through grief of people who have died. I don't know what is wrong with my voice right now. Hold on. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord. It says, The day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night, but it shouldn't surprise us like that. We are to be awake and sober. It says, Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Then he gives final instructions and tells um, to uh, love each other, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Um, these are the people who are working in the Lord and um, those who are admonishing them and working for the Lord and stuff like that. It says, live in peace together. Um, Don't be idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. This is very important, but strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. He says to rejoice always, to pray pray continually, and to give thanks in all circumstances. Um, I did not know that just rejoice always is just chap is verse 16. That's a full verse. And then pray continually is a full verse. Okay, now we are on 2 Thessalonians. So let's read the intro here. It says, apparently only shortly after writing his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had to write again to correct a false report that he had said the day of the Lord had already come. The day of the Lord was a phrase from the Hebrew prophets to describe God's key victory over every opponent when his faithful ones would be rewarded. The Thessalonians' concern seems to have been not that the day had come and gone and they had missed it, but that it was now present. That would mean nothing more was to be expected from God in terms of setting things right. Since they continued to suffer persecutions, this was a deeply depressing prospect. 
Even before he contradicts this false report, Paul reassures the Thessalonians that God will indeed pay back all those who are troubling them. He reminds them of the details he had discussed with them in person of how the day of the Lord would arrive. He then repeats some instruction from his earlier letter, urging them to not be idle, but to work hard and earn their own livings. At the end of the letter, most of which would have been written by a scribe, Paul adds a greeting in his own handwriting. He wants them to know for sure this teaching is really coming from him. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 1. This is a very short letter, just to correct this one kind of problem doctrine. But so he starts out again with thanksgiving and prayer. He said, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He is just. He said, he will punish those who do not obey the gospel, will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his glory. So this is like, he doesn't talk about hell that much. Like the Old Testament or the New Testament doesn't talk about hell a ton. But this is like one instance where we see, yes, he, those who do not believe in the gospel will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Um in the afterlife okay second thessalonians 2 talks about the man of lawlessness he said they had heard that the day of the lord had already come and were very unsettled again like the intro says it was a deeply depressing doctrine that they were hearing because they said like we are getting punished and persecuted and if this has already been set right like nothing else is going to be done and we just have to put up with this he said, don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Then this is the quote. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So saying like all these end time things have to happen. He's talking about like the Antichrist, I think, who will come and try to deceive all these believers and the time of tribulation and stuff like that. We're going to get into Revelation, but I think that's what he's referring to there. And the time will come, like the, the second coming and the day of the Lord will not happen until all of these other things have happened first. So stand firm and hold fast to the teachings. It hasn't happened yet. He then requests prayer from the Thessalonians in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, Pray that the message of the Lord spread rapidly and be honored. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He tells them to stay away from a believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching that they have received from us. Um, he says to earn their own livings. Like some people I think were being idle and just kind of mooching off of the church or like the collective you know, good and offerings and stuff. And he says, no, go out, work hard, earn your own living, never tire of doing what is good. He says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So that is basically the Amish approach, which I feel like is a pretty good way to approach it. It's like, don't associate them as an enemy, but don't, I mean, sorry, don't regard them as an enemy. But, you know, while they are not obeying the instruction and while they are not 
living as a Christian would do not associate with them because this like feeling of being ashamed will or this conviction will lead them back to the true gospel. So that's the Amish approach when people talk about shunning. Now, I don't know, again, how well that's carried out. Maybe it's a little harsher um, or less harsh in some uh, divisions of the Amish communities, but that's what that's where it comes from. Okay, First Timothy. We are into First Timothy now. Here is the intro for this. So after Paul was released from prison in Rome, he discovered that leaders in the Ephesian church had distorted the genuine message they had first heard from Paul himself. They had misapplied certain Jewish practices and borrowed some others from the philosophies of the day. They restricted certain foods, forbade marriage, and stressed controversial speculations as the path to spiritual progress. At the same time, they tolerated immoral behavior. So Paul sent his co-worker Timothy to Ephesus and wrote him a letter which he was expected to share with the church. He hoped it would give Timothy the power and influence to set things in order until Paul could get to Ephesus himself. Paul's focus on Paul's focus is on what true leadership in the church looks like. This would help the Ephesians reject those who weren't qualified and replace them with those who were. Paul includes a special warning toward the end of his letter about the dangers of greed, which seemed to be at the root of their problems. Throughout the letter, Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus, that is Messiah Jesus, which emphasizes the kingly rule of Jesus. This helped remind the church that Jesus is their real leader and is the clearest model of authentic leadership. All right, so 1 Timothy 1. Timothy is charged to oppose false teachers. Paul tells Timothy to stay in Ephesus to command certain people to not teach false doctrines that are not advancing God's work. He said, some have departed from love, a pure heart, a good conscience, severe faith, and have just turned to meaningless talk. But then it talks about how these immoral behaviors are being allowed. Um, he said, we, all, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law <clears throat> is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers the sexually immoral for those practicing homosexuality for slave traders and liars and perjurers so people always talk about how um you know the bible is like complacent in slavery because they say to for masters to respect slaves and slaves to respect masters but right here he talks about how slave traders are evil he groups them in with the the sins is slave trading so paul is not saying that slavery is a good thing he's talking about the slave trade is bad but if there are people that find themselves in these roles in society at that moment and he's saying like like if you are a slave respect your master if you are a slave master respect your uh slave and treat them well okay um then he talks about the Lord's grace. So Paul says he was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, violent, ignorant, and unbelieving, but grace was poured out to him abundantly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom he said he is the worst. He says, in me, Jesus displays immense patience. And then he charges Timothy to go tell all of this to the people. He also, in 1 Timothy 2, gives instructions on worship. He says that um, 
he urges that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He wants all people to be saved. God does. He says God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one mediator between God and mankind, which is Jesus Christ. Now, one of the issues, I guess, that I have with some Catholic doctrine is that like Mary or other saints can go and and be a mediator or like an intercessor between us and Jesus or us and God. Um, so there's this way that, uh, that I read about how like the Catholic church interprets that verse saying that, yes, the one single mediator between God and mankind is Christ Jesus, but that other saints can intercess on it on our part or on behalf of us to Jesus. So there's like these other mediators between us and Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ is the mediator between us and God. Anyway, I feel like that is, I just don't really agree with that. So I think we go directly to God and our mediator is Jesus Christ. Anyway, we can get into that with more in-depth Catholicism. Um, podcasts because I do want to understand and fully grasp the theology there. I feel like I need to go to just like Catholic seminary <laughs> because I'm just so interested in what the doctrines are and what I what my opinion is about that doctrine. Um, but at the moment, yeah, um, I don't agree that saints can intercess for you. But okay, so um, Paul says, we want men everywhere to pray. We want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Women should be quiet, submissive. And this is where he says, do not permit women to teach or assume authority over man. Now there's a lot of discussion about if this is just because of the contrast of like, everyone around them was was uh, pagans or like different religions and they were basically worshiping women. And so in order to contrast that, that's why. But people have a lot of opinions about this. We're gonna do a whole podcast about women teaching in church and the different opinions about it. Um, okay, First Timothy 3, he talks about qualifications for overseers and deacons. He said, being an overseer is a notable or is a noble task. They must be faithful to their wives, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not prone to drunkenness or violence or quarrelsome. Um, and <clears throat> they cannot be a lover of money. He has to manage his family well and has to have been in the faith for a while and not just be like a brand new recent convert. Deacons also have to be upstanding and hold deep truths. This whole section is really about like choose the elders and the leaders um, very wisely. Timothy, First Timothy 4, he says, the spirit says in later times some will abandon the faith and follow these deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The examples are the people that... Paul is sending Timothy to go correct, saying, like, you can't marry, you have to abstain from certain foods, and these things are not correct. They're just adding these other rules that are not of God. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. 
Um, Paul tells Timothy to teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So being young is really not an excuse for Timothy. He says, it doesn't matter that you're young. Go set an example to people. In 1 Timothy 5, this is another section about how the church should treat each other. He says, do not rebuke old men harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat young men as brothers, young women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, there's a lot of hatred <laughs> and hating on the purity culture in church. I honestly wish in some instances of the church there was more purity culture. I think we have swung the pendulum so far opposite into, and I've talked about this before, but we've swung the like, there's a truth and a love or like a truth and a grace pendulum. And I feel like many of the older generations, when I talk to older Christians, talk only about how their church was in the like truth category where they just preached and it maybe went into too much legalism. And so people would say, oh, stay pure before marriage. But it wasn't because it wasn't presented as a way to honor the Lord with your body. It was presented as <clears throat> just a rule. And so then we have swung to this like, come as you are, you're totally fine, which is true, but that comes with, or tends to come with, nothing in your life needs to change. And so the purity culture of saying like, we need to stay pure, pure in heart, pure in mind, but also like when I reference purity culture, it's more like not having sex before marriage we have swung so far the other way now in like the young generation of the church that people just rag on purity culture and say like it's really not important and it no one makes a, a big deal about it anymore some people do obviously that's like a blanket statement some people still are very focused on purity but others just say like oh it doesn't matter we don't have to live by these legalism rules it's totally fine to just like mess up and it's okay which Jesus does make our sins right. If we mess up, God forgives them, but we shouldn't be complacent in our sin. And I feel like these, there is a very clear charge here to be pure, you know, and people are, are kind of sugarcoating that, I think. So I wish that the churches I went to were stronger about purity and the importance of purity because I feel like in the college scene, it's a little bit watered down to make people feel okay about their sin and to make people make the gospel <clears throat> more appealing. Like you don't have to change anything, but you'll have everlasting life. That's at least how it was presented to me. <laughs> so anyway, <sighs> then he talks about the treatment of widows saying like people should take care of widows. It's like a bunch of um, guidelines for who should be put on this list to like be supported by the community. But if someone is already being supported by an individual family, just keep doing that. You don't want to put the burden on the church. So like basically how they're taking care of the poor and the widows. He tells Timothy to not partake in sin. He says if an accusation comes against an elder, um, it has to be brought by two or three witnesses. Um, but elders who are sinning and are proven to be sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. Okay, 1 Timothy 6, 
uh, says that slaves should be good to their believing masters because they are fellow believers and they are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So in that whole section, again, talking about like slavery, um, Paul is charging any slave owner to be devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Um, okay, false teachers and the love of money. Don't listen to let's see don't listen oh he says that you shouldn't have an unhealthy interest in controversies quarrels and words that result in envy strife malicious talk or evil suspicions this is very very easy to do today with all these like gossip youtube channels and the news is just all about these controversies and quarrels and stuff i really had to like reel myself back in with these because i used to really love uh reality tv and i still do but i have to be careful about it because like the bachelor <laughs> i don't watch the bachelor anymore but it's partly because of this like there's nothing wholesome coming out of a lot of these reality shows it's literally just an interest in controversies and quarrels like that's really why we're watching and i did realize it was like unhealthy some reality shows are great like duck uh what's it called duck dynasty i love but they do not fight and have this malicious talk and stuff so again what you're filling with your mind uh, or what you're filling your mind with is very important okay he talks about being content also so he says godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that <clears throat> those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. <clears throat> so be content. And then he gives the final charge to Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, and to fight the good fight of faith. So that is a very good book. This letter to Timothy has a lot of great knowledge. It's really not very long, so I would highly recommend go reading that for yourself, but it's packed full of wisdom. All right, we are on the second to last book of the day. And that is 2 Timothy. So let's read the intro. Okay, 2 <clears throat> Timothy intro is, Paul left his coworker Timothy in the city of Ephesus to deal with some renegade leaders in the church there. When Timothy struggled, however, Paul went back to Ephesus. Once there, Paul suffered a great deal of harm from Alexander, one of these leaders, and he was once again imprisoned and taken to Rome. He expected that his time he expected that this time he would be tried and executed. Paul wrote to Timothy to ask him to come to Rome quickly. Things in Ephesus had not gone as Paul or Timothy expected. Paul had ordered both Alexander and Hymenaeus to step down from leadership, but they were continuing to oppose Paul. Others had joined them, and they were still misdirecting people into a corrupted version of the faith that stressed debate and dissension rather than purity and obedience. Timothy was discouraged and intimidated. Paul's letter includes challenges to stay faithful to the true message, even if this meant suffering or death. Paul reminds Timothy that in the days before the open appearance of Jesus as king, there will be lots of trouble. False teachers, treacherous and insincere people, persecutions, and more will, and more will all challenge the faithfulness of God's people. Paul urges Timothy to remember the gospel message, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from Paul, or <laughs> descended from David. <laughs> He points out that the sacred writings Timothy, Timothy has known since he was a child are God-breathed and will help him continue in doing good work. 
All right, so 2 Timothy 1, again, he always opens the letter with thanksgiving. He says Timothy is constantly in Paul's prayers, and he is convinced that Timothy has sincere faith. He tells Timothy to fan the flame of God, fan the flame of the gift of God, and he says, like, hey, the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So he's encouraging him to stay strong in this crazy opposition that they're seeing. And then he gives examples of disloyalty and loyalty. He says that this guy, Onus Forrest, helped him when he was in chains, and he refreshed him. In 2 Timothy 2, he said to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. He said, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian, civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. He's saying to, like, he says God is faithful and tells him, like, you are working for Jesus Christ. Uh, he says, warn people against quarreling. It is of no value. So again, this is in direct response to people saying that quarreling and dissension is central to the faith, which is not true. So he said, warn people against quarreling. It is of no value. Avoid godless chatter. Those who indulge it will become more and more ungodly. There are false teachers saying that the resurrection has already come. He says, he tells Timothy to flee from the desires of his youth to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and a pure heart. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. All right. 2 Timothy 3 says there will be terrible times in the last days, but, you know, he says people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Okay, all this sounds pretty similar to what's happening today. Um, they're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres, oh, oops, opposed Moses, so all the, these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, we rejected, are, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Then he gives a final charge to Timothy to tell him to continue on in what he has learned, says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He And then in 2 Timothy 4, he says to preach the word, <clears throat> be prepared in and out of season. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather with great numbers and say what their itching ears want to hear. That is also happening today. A lot of preachers say things that they know will get a good reaction out of their congregation, not actually things that are biblical, that are like convicting people of their sins that are not, you know, it's just like an ear itch that they want to get scratched. 
Um, and then he says, you know, do your best to come to me quickly um, because of these issues. And only Luke is with him. He tells Timothy to get Mark and bring him with Timothy. All right. And our final book of the day is Titus. It's a short one. It's only three chapters. So let's get into the intro. It says, after the apostle Paul was released from prison in Rome, he discovered that renegade leaders were preying on the people of the church he had founded in Ephesus. He therefore left his longtime co-worker Timothy in the city with a letter authorizing him to replace these leaders and restore order. A similar situation on the island of Crete required Paul to commission another longtime co-worker Titus to act as his representative there. Paul's letter is addressed to Titus, but it is meant for the larger church as well. He confers his own authority on Titus and instructs him to appoint godly leaders. Paul's description of the false teaching matches that in Ephesus, a combination of selective Jewish observances, such as being circumcised and abstaining from certain foods, and the pursuit of controversial speculations. However, the teaching didn't help people live pure lives. Paul tells the community that the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It is the true message about Jesus that helps God's people live in a new kind of life. Paul reveals his plan to spend the winter in Nicopolis, a city on the west coast of Macedonia. It would provide an excellent jumping off point for bringing the gospel to the western part of the empire. He trusts that Titus will help restore order in Crete so he can accompany Paul on this new venture. Okay, so in Titus 1, Paul tells Titus to appoint leaders who love what is good. He said, you know, again, this is like the same teaching that he gives to Timothy, but you know, leaders should not be quick-tempered, drunk, violent, or pursuing dishonest gain. They have to be hospitable, love good, be self-controlled, all those good things. Basically, like choose leaders well. He said rebellious people must be rebuked. They ought not to teach. He said pay no attention to the Jewish myths or the human commands of those who reject the truth. They claim to know God, but by their actions, you know, they don't. They deny God. In Titus 2, he says to teach everyone to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. He said, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. They can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Again, some instructions for a Christian household. He tells the young men to show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech, and he teaches um, slaves to not steal, show they can be trusted, and for, you know, masters to teach them well, or to treat them well. For the grace of God has appeared that offers, it's a, wait, this is chapter, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Then in the last chapter of Titus, he says that we are saved in order to do good. He said to remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to not slander anyone, be peaceful and considerate and gentle. 
He said, at one time we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy and hated being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He goes on and on and on about that. He said, so those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. He says to avoid foolish controversies and then just gives the final greetings and remarks. And that is the book of Titus. So again, you can see like a similar vein running through all these letters, which is live in peace with one another, do what is good. It recognizes the fullness of God's mercy and how he saved us from our sin, but also tells us to strive to be holy and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that is what we are going to do (laughs) out here. And, um, that is all we have for this week's episode. Next week, we're going from Philemon to Jude, which is like our second to last Bible episode. And then the last, like the week after that is Revelation, which I'm a little bit nervous about, to be honest. I haven't read Revelation in a very long time and it's very cryptic. So I'm going to need some time to prep that one (laughs) and read a lot of Bible commentaries. So that one's over two weeks. Next week is Philemon to Jude. And that is like our second to last one. So we have almost read through the Bible in less than a year. I started the Bible in a year podcast in April. And so we have made great headway and we'll finish in about 10 months total. So thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to rate, comment, review all of that on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. That would be greatly appreciated. And I will see you for next week's Bible episode. But for Monday, we are going over what it takes to become a Catholic nun. I'm watching this show called Call the Midwife. I mentioned it last podcast. And it's this order of nuns that they're all midwives. And then there's some nurses that aren't nuns that are also living in that same convent. And they are also midwives. So that got me very curious about what the process is to actually become a nun in the Catholic Church, what the requirements are, how long it takes, all of that kind of thing, the different orders. And so we are going over that on Monday. And then the Thursday episode is the history and all of the fun facts about the state of New Jersey. So we have a jam-packed week coming up. I hope you all enjoy the podcast episodes and I will see you Monday. Bye, everyone.